Scripture reading will come from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives, and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable in all things, having, in all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Good morning. It is a delight to see you here this morning. Happy New Year. We're very thankful for another year, another opportunity, and thankful to the God of heaven who's blessed us again so richly. Uh, I don't know that I've said this uh, yet publicly, but uh, let me do it now. Seems like a good time uh, to say thank you on behalf of my family and I for uh, inviting us to be a part of this good family here. We're very thankful for that, very appreciative of the way you've received us and treated us. You've been so kind and made us a part of the family and feel right at home. We're very thankful for that for all of your goodness to us. Part of the challenge with that is I don't know everybody yet. <laughs> Which means there are some jokesters out there that get me because I don't know that they're jokesters. And one of them got me this morning. I thought she was so serious. She said, uh, it's good to see you. I said, good to see you. She said, I missed you. I said, missed you too? She said, Were you, is everything okay? I said, as far as I know, everything's fine. She said, really? Are you okay? Now I'm concerned. I'm like, I thought I was before this conversation. <laughs> Are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. She said, I was getting worried. I hadn't seen you at all this year in church. <laughs> That's how we're doing it right there. That's how we're doing it. Okay, okay, okay. New Year's are wonderful times of uh, opportunities for new starts, new beginnings. I hope that you're not past resolutions to start over, to make fresh starts, or to continue even what you've already begun. I'm always optimistic in the new year. I'm always excited about it, always happy about it. Look forward to it. It provides us opportunities. One, for introspection. I know businesses do that at the end of the year. They'll take inventory and they'll have meetings about how we did and where we've been and what we're going to, and they'll, they'll do that sort of thing. Uh, our families, I think, I would encourage families to do that, to have your own CEO meeting about the company, the family. How did we do this year? Look back on the past and think about the present and look forward to the future. You can uh, have some introspection. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says we should examine yourselves, see whether or not you're in the faith. And then there's identification, because once you do that introspection, you can then identify kind of where we are. Well, here's where we are, here's what we're working on, and, and here's where we're going. You can identify then. 1 Kings 19, 9, God asked Elijah, what are you doing here? And so that's a good question for us to ask, where am I? What am I doing right here? And after you do those two things, well, then that could lead to initiation. That is, I've located where I am, and I have a destination of where I want to be, and now we can execute, initiate a plan of how we're going to get there. And it's with those things in mind that we're going to go through this sermon this morning and this evening. This is a two-part sermon. Uh, part number one is this morning. There are three points. And part number two will be this evening, three more points. And so I'd invite you to come back this evening so we can go through the rest of the material. But we want to notice a total of six areas in which you can, I can look as we move forward into the new year and how to make it a great one. And we can all do these things. And I would encourage, as Paul said to Timothy, to put the brethren in remembrance of these things. The first of those points is this. Number one, personal responsibility. It is a blessing from God, and it is something that I would encourage every one of us to deeply consider and reflect upon. We are made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and that means several things. 
Obviously, God is spirit, John 4, 23, 24. He is not fleshly, and so it is his spirit that we have housed in a body. That spirit is among the things that makes for this personal identification. That's what it does. This blessing identifies us. You and I are uniquely different in the world. There is an individuality to every human being. It also makes us independent of each other. We are free. We're free moral agents. As we'll discuss in a moment, the truth is your actions don't determine mine. I'm independent of you in that regard, and that too is a blessing from God. And ultimately, this is something that's inescapable. You know, it needs to be owned because, well, God's going to hold you to it. And it's those three areas that are worthy of reflecting on when it comes to personal responsibility. The first one to whom we're responsible is God. You and I have a personal responsibility to God. He is, after all, our maker. He made us. We didn't make ourselves. Furthermore, he bought us. We didn't buy ourselves. We belong to him. There is a personal responsibility to the God of heaven. We see this as early as Genesis chapter 3 and verses 9 to 19. When Adam and Eve sinned, God approached them. But you'll notice first he said to Adam, where are you? There is this responsibility that you and I have, and God wanted Adam to understand that. In fact, you can hear it in his question, did you eat of the tree which I commanded you not to eat of? You can't escape how personal that is between God and Adam. Adam owes God an answer, and God is waiting. And God's subsequent actions toward Adam is expressly because Adam's responsible for his behavior and his relationship with God. Even the excuse he's offered, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave it to me. It bore nothing. It helped him in no way. It didn't deter God. It didn't move God. The question was still, did you eat? And then God turned and did the exact same thing to Eve. Every one of us is responsible to God. Secondly, personal responsibility is to yourself. We owe it to ourselves to be honest with ourselves. It is amazing that one of the worst deceptions in the world is self-deception. You could simply choose to be dishonest with you. You could simply say, I am something you know you're not. I act in a way you know you don't. I feel a particular way. You know you don't. You are and have a responsibility to be honest with yourself, to examine your beliefs. That's what 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says. Examine yourself. Every individual is to do that, especially those in Christ. Sometimes people fall away, and those of us who remain are left to ask, what happened? Well, I can tell you this, at least in part, that person didn't do a thorough enough job of examining their own beliefs, examining themselves to see whether or not they were in the faith. Know you not that Christ is in you? Do you not know that? Do I not know that? Except or unless we be reprobates. We're supposed to know that. That comes through self-examination. We also owe it to ourselves to be good to ourselves to live lives that are good to us. It's unfortunate, but sometimes the truth is we hurt ourselves. We do things that are harmful to us, and we know it. Now, oftentimes, that which we're doing is, in our minds at least, to alleviate pain. But very often what ends up happening is it causes more pain than it ever alleviates. We're already hurting, and then we reach for something to try to stop the hurt, but that something ultimately hurts us because very often it becomes an addictive, destructive thing. You owe it to yourself to speak good things to yourselves. I encourage sometimes, I, let me encourage you, I'd encourage you to read Psalm 8. If you read Psalm 8, it will talk about what God has done for man, and among the things that God has done is he's crowned him with glory and honor. If God says you are crowned with glory and honor, then you are. And if God made you in his image, then you share his image. And if Jesus says you're worth the whole world, then you are. And even you shouldn't disagree with that. A lot of times we talk very nicely to other people and then very harmfully to ourselves. We can be very critical of self. We can harm self with the very words that we choose to use. We owe it to ourselves 
to be good to ourselves. But then thirdly, we have a personal responsibility to others. Paul says in Romans 14, 7, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. We are all connected to each other. He also says in Ephesians 4 and verse 25, wherefore put in away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We're connected to each other. We have personal responsibilities to ourselves, to God, and to others. The best hope the world can have is for you to be the best version of yourself in it. I would urge that you and I own the power that Christ has in us. Very often when you talk about improvement, everybody wants the world, work, family, church. We want it all to be better. And it's almost as if we live with this notion that it will get better. It will get better in the world. It will get better in work. It will get better in the church. It will get better at home as soon as everybody else changes. As soon as everybody else gets it together, this place is going to be great. And I can tell you all that's wrong with it. All you got to do is ask me. But being better is not determined by the number of people who change. It's determined by Christ. Let me ask you this. Can you remember a week ago? One week ago. Do you remember what was on the world's mind and what was on every one of our minds? Do you remember? It was just a week ago. We were all thinking and talking about Jesus. We read passages like this one. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were so afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. A week ago, just seven days ago, we, the nation, possibly the world, believed that things got better when Jesus was born. And when Jesus walked the earth, and when Jesus died for the sins of the world and rose from the dead, things got better. What happened? It was just a week ago, we believed it was Jesus. This week, we believe, boy, if everybody else would just change, if this situation would just change, you know where better begins and better is is if Christ is in you. And if Christ changes you, better begins right there. You don't need the world to change. You need Christ in us in the world. But that involves personal responsibility. Paul said to the brethren in Colossae, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. That'll just make everything better. Our personal responsibility, I'd encourage you to own your personal responsibility and embrace the power of God to change you. You are not responsible for what other people say and do to you. You are not responsible for, for any circumstances and, and things that happen within the world. That's not what you're responsible for. What you are responsible for is what you say and do. You can't go around changing other people. Chances are good we've all tried, and chances are good they've tried on us. And neither has been very successful. But what we can do is change ourselves. Jesus was sinned against, and yet he never sinned. Jesus was lied on, and yet there was no guile found in his mouth. Jesus was mocked and beaten and sped upon, betrayed, denied, and crucified. And yet he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his footsteps. 
who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he was threatened, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Let me ask you, will you own the responsibility of him living in you? If you don't own personal responsibility, what will happen is you'll spend another day, another month, another week, another year couching your life in terms of, I'm a victim of circumstance. I'm a victim of my environment. I am a victim of the people around me. I would be different, but they, them, it, this. See, it's out of my control. If you don't own your own personal responsibility, and you will go around couching your life in terms of, it's out of my hands, I just drift along and do well, and shaped and informed by the circumstance, the situation, and the people. But you need maybe some help. And so closely connected with personal responsibility is the idea of accountability. Everybody needs in their life an individual like Micaiah. You'll find him in 1 Kings 22, beginning in verse number 1. He prophesied during the days of Ahab. In fact, he was in his court. He was one of the prophets there during the time. Ahab hated him. In fact, he says as much. Jehoshaphat would ask Ahab, is there not another prophet that we can ask? Is there someone else we can appeal to? Now, they had already had hundreds of prophets come in and tell the king exactly what he wanted to hear. And Jehoshaphat said, is there not another Ahab knew him, and he said, yeah, there is another one, but I hate him. Why do you hate him? Because he never speaks good concerning me. You should hear that as, he always tells me the truth. Sure enough, Micaiah came into the presence of the kings, and he said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that will I speak. You need that person in your life. You need an individual like Nathan, 2 Samuel 12 and verse number 7, who could stand and was willing to, courageous enough, even in the presence of the king, say to David, you are the man, the man that has done this. Imagine David announcing that man's punishment. The man who has done this is worthy of death. And the courage of the prophet to say, you are that man. You need that person in your life. David was confronted by Nathan, but it's only after the confrontation that David, moved by that with a good and honest heart, acknowledged, I have sinned. And if what most believe is true, then Psalm 51 was written after that event with the great outpouring and lamentation of a broken and contrite heart. How did he get there? Because somebody in his life was willing to hold him accountable for his actions. You need that person in your life. Everybody needs a Barnabas. Barnabas did many things that were wonderful. Among them is he gave of his means freely, Acts chapter 4. He went on missionary journeys with Paul, Acts 13 and onward. But among the things that stand out about him is in a time in Saul's life when no one else wanted him around, Barnabas stood forward, and the Bible says Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. If you get wayward and headed the wrong direction, you need somebody to come get you. Let me ask you, is there somebody in your life who can tell you the truth? Second question, is there somebody in your life who will tell you the truth? Those things are not the same. Because sometimes there's people in your life and they know, they know with regards to your personal responsibility, you're falling down. They see it, they know it, they're close enough to you. I'm not talking about wild accusations and insults made in anger and argument. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody close to you, loves you, knows you, cares for you, and could honestly assess and say, listen, you're falling down in this area on your personal responsibility. Do you have that person? Will they do it? Can they do it? 
And what happens if they do it? Chances are good they probably already tried. Chances are good they've already shared it with you and they don't anymore. Because the way you reacted when they said it was defensive, insultive, maybe even boomerangish in that, yes, that's a made-up word, but in that you turned it on them, and instead of receiving it, you turned back on them and told them all their failures, though they weren't the point of discussion. And so you may have this person in your life. Let me just encourage you to react properly if they muster the strength and the courage to say it again because you need this person in your life. You need somebody who loves you enough to hold you accountable. Personal responsibility is so wonderful. Number one, among the things it is, is it is empowering. When you own your own person, you get to say what Paul said, I can do all things through Christ. It's empowering. I can, but not only that, it's humbling. Because when you own your own personal responsibility, one of the things you know is, I fail. I mess up. And so it's humbling because you realize, I need Jesus. Number three is influential. When you own your personal responsibility, other people are influenced by it. Paul says, the brethren saw me and they took courage. Paul owned his, other people saw it and were influenced. Number four, it's illuminating. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And then he said, let your light so shine that others may see your good works. When they see you, they'll glorify God. It illuminates the darkness. It's preserving. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. It's fulfilling. Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. It's not bragging, it's fulfilling. Imagine Paul getting to the end of his life looking back and says, I can through Jesus, and I have. It's transformative. Saul of Tarsus was on the road. He met Jesus. Here's what he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? This is not about anybody else. I'm going to transform my life. How? By owning my personal self. What do you want me to do? Go into the city, and they'll be told you what you must do. And Saul is transformed into Paul. It's contagious. In sports, there's always the best player on the team. Always. It's always true in every team, in every sport. There's somebody who stands out. Here's one of the things that the coaches say. When the best player shows up early, when the best player stays late, when the best player runs the drill hard, when the best player can be confronted by the coach for ways to improve, let me ask you, what does that do to everybody else? You're not barely getting in the game showing up late when the best player showed up early. I've even seen this on the pro level. I heard professional athletes talk about other professional athletes. And they say of that guy, oh, when I saw him working that hard, I knew I need, that's a professional talk. It's contagious. You can hear the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians say, brethren, I've not attained. I press forward. What did that do to everybody else? One of the things we say sometimes is, I'm not Paul. What does that tell us? At the very least, then, I'm trying. He, if, if Paul had made it, let me, keep, let me keep trying to attain. It's liberating. It frees you. So many people are in bondage. Sadly, the key is on the inside of the cell. You can get free anytime you want to. You can get out of jail anytime you want to. But those people who are in bondage so often believe as soon as they release me, 
As soon as the circumstances change, I can get out. Maybe an earthquake will open the bars. Maybe somebody will set me free. How long will you stay in the cell with the key on the wall? It reminds me of the old Andy Griffith show. You remember it? The man had a key to get out of—listen, if Jesus has freed you, then the only thing keeping you in bondage is you. If you will own your personal responsibility, you can walk right over, grab the key off the wall, unlock the cell, and walk out. It will free you from excuses. It will free you from blame. It will free you from hoping that the circumstances improve in such a way that I could just act. It will free you from bad situations. Personal responsibility is healthy. Body, soul, mind, emotionally, spiritually, any way you describe it, you are never better than when you take ownership of your own life. You submit that life to Jesus and you follow in his footsteps. As you go forward into this year, this new year, great time to embrace and flourish in being personally responsible for your life. Joshua said, as for me and my house, I'm going to own my own personal responsibility and we're going to hold each other accountable. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every one of us must be given account of the things which he hath done in his own body, whether they be good or bad. Secondly, spiritual development. There are two areas on which to focus with regards to spiritual development as you and I go into this new year, the first of which is salvation. If you are not and have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and friends, we would urge there is no more pressing need in your life than to submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the first order of business and the most important thing you need to do with your life. And if you have your Bibles and be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 7, you will read why. There simply is nothing more important than having your soul saved and your sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 7, Paul writes, And to give relief to you who are troubled, to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Notice what will happen in verse number 8. It says, Dealing our retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. If you do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, notice verse 9. The Bible says these, the two groups in verse 8, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Friends, that's what's going to happen. And anybody telling you otherwise simply disagrees with Scripture. It's not an interpretation. It's not made up. That's just what it says. If you don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be separated from God eternally. It's just what the Bible says. And to believe the Bible is to believe that. You know, we're thankful for a new year. And we say that understanding we haven't been given a year. We say that really understanding we've been given a day. It starts the new year, but it's a day, and that's where the Bible would have us focus. Proverbs 27 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And you and I have already lived long enough over the last two, three, four years to appreciate there can be much change and upheaval in one day that the events of yesterday could change dramatically in today. That's what Paul is, that's what the Proverbs writer is saying, and we don't know that. And there'll be people saying, oh, put it off, get around to it, please don't do that. And friends, tomorrow's not promised to any of us. Revelation 20 and verse number 14 says this, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How does one's name get written in the book of life? You obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's how that happens. One who does not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot have the blood of Jesus covering them, washing away their sins, Revelation 1.5. And if Jesus' blood doesn't cleanse you or wash you, then, friends, you can't go to heaven if you die in that state. If you've never done that, friends, that would be the invitation. That's where spiritual maturity begins. The second part of spiritual maturity is sanctification, spiritual growth. Maturing and growing up into God and into Christ, being transformed more and more into His image. Again, if you have your Bibles, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Read it there and listen to the Apostle Paul explain it. There is a sense, biblically speaking, in which when you obey the gospel, you are also sanctified. That is, to be saved, in a sense, is to be sanctified because it happens one, one time at the point of salvation. That's absolutely true. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 2, those individuals in Corinth were called saints, set apart, sanctified in their being saved. But then the Bible talks about having done that, now the process of growing, maturing, becoming more and more transformed into the image of our God. Well, it talks about that too, and it calls that sanctification. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as you can see by the opening of verse number 1, these are already brethren. Most of the New Testament is written to brethren, individuals who have already obeyed the gospel, and they're being told, here's how to live as a Christian. Same thing here. That's sanctification. Paul says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as ye receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you actually do walk. And that's how often sanctification will be described, as a walk, as a growth, as maturing. You can hear it in Peter's language, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. If you slide down to verse number 5, he talks about changing their lives, not being immoral anymore, not in lustful fashion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgressified his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as you also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. You might also read sometimes holiness. You will find the same language in 2 Timothy 2, 15 to 19, where Paul talks about being in a great house and vessels of honor, and being made meat for the master's use. What's the exhortation then? Make a personal plan to grow closer to God. Make a personal plan to mature and to be transformed into the image of Jesus. If necessary, ask for help. Sometimes people want to do things, they just don't know how to do them. It's understandable. It's not exactly fair nor reasonable to baptize people and then assume they know how to go about growing and maturing. That's what the body is for. Elders, preachers, that's what they're for. And so if you need help, see your elders. If you need help, see your preachers. If, if you need help, see mature members, see a deacon, see somebody further along down the road, an arc of growth and maturation, who can help you. How do you do it? Well, there's really no other way but God's Word. It's why the Bible emphasizes quite literally the consumption of it. It talks about it in terms of consuming something. You will hear it in John chapter 4 where Jesus is at the well talking about water, and he says, I have living water. I want you to consume. If you drink this, you have to imbibe it. You have to drink it. What's he talking about? His Word. Him. He's talking about his Word. In John chapter 6, they'll talk about manna from heaven, and Jesus will say, listen, God didn't give your fathers. They didn't eat the manna. The manna is he that came from heaven. I'm the true bread, and if you eat me, eat what? Eat his Word. John 6, 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The word that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He's not talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, but he is talking about consuming him, his word, his teaching, his life, him. You have to imbibe him. You have to consume him. Friends, you got to drink his word. 
That's why the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 5 would chide his audience by saying, when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principle of the Lord of God. But then he'll say, strong meat belongs to them who have their senses exercised by reason of use. How do we get our muscles stronger? How do we become better athletes? How do we run longer, jog longer, lift more? How do we do that? Use. We tax the body. We put it under strain. We actually have to get off the couch and walk. We can't do that sitting still. That's what he is saying spiritually. How do you exercise your spiritual muscles? Use them. It's one thing to pray for peace. That, that's a great prayer. But you and I can't pray for peace in the hopes that we never have to exercise our spiritual faith. We can't do that. Count it all joy, brethren, when? When you fall into diverse trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh endurance. It's the trial that makes you stronger. And so many Christians, instead of taking personal responsibility and then being accountable and then being willing to grow, they just want nothing to happen. I want no resistance. I want no issue. If you and I live without strain, without effort, we can't grow the endurance. I understand it. I get it. Listen, I don't want to go to work every day in a terrible, toxic environment either. I understand that. But it's that terrible, toxic environment for saints that actually allows them to practice what? Patience, long-suffering, goodness and gentleness and meekness. How do we get better at those things? Exercise. Where do we get that? Christ. How do we get it? We drink him. We feed our souls him. Let me encourage and offer you a challenge this morning. You hopefully you heard those three or four words, encourage and offer a challenge, not an obligation. This is an invitation. Would you like to join? You ever had people try to get you to commit before you knew what you were committing to? I don't want you to do that. But I would invite you, ask you, did you know that you could read the New Testament in 30 days? That you could read the entire New Testament before January 31 ends and before February 1st begins. You and I could do that. I know it sounds like a big ask, but when you hear it, you'll think, eh. Turns out, what that breaks down to is a little more than eight and a half chapters a day. I feel like an infomercial person, just $19 a day. <laughs> eight and a half chapters, maybe a few more, just a little bit more than that. Eight and a half chapters and we can read the entire New Testament together. Here's how it works. There is reading and then there's studying, and then there's meditating. But you can't do number two and number three until you do number one. And so a lot of people, I want to be deeper in the Scriptures. I want to be deep in the Scriptures. I want to know more about the Scriptures. You can't get there unless you read it. And reading is not studying. Don't confuse the two. I'm not asking you study the Bible and study the New Testament for not 30 days. Not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is read it, because chances are good you and I could become more familiar with it. And the way to become more familiar with it is simply to read it every day, about eight or nine chapters. If you do that, we'll be through the month of January, and we will have read the New Testament. Now, if you'd like to participate in this, please come see me. I'd be glad to go along with you on the journey. It'll do number one. We'll be personally responsible and accountable to each other. Not an obligation, though. Chances are good. You didn't think about reading the New Testament in 30 days. So let me offer this. What if you did it over 60? Maybe 31 is a little bit much. I get it. It is too. I don't want to tell you this is easy because it's not. Reading the New Testament nine chapters a day is hard work. So maybe you break it up. But did you believe that before you came in here this morning, you could read the New Testament in two months? Surely if nine chapters doesn't sound like much, how about I toss you four and a half? 
Four and a half chapters a day, you can be through the New Testament February. End of February, you'll be done. Not good enough? How about a quarter? Let's go to March. 90 days, three chapters a day, done with the New Testament. Friends, you can do this. And the reality is, if you and I are going to grow our spiritual man, there really is no way around this. But if you like, and I'll move on right after this, you could listen to it. Come on now. Isn't technology good? You could just listen to it. You could put it on in the morning. You could put it on afternoon, at night. You could just go through the day in the car. You could listen to the Bible. In 30 days, you'd be done with the New Testament. I can tell you this, and I know this to be true. When you do this once or twice, you'll notice how I said when. When you do this once or twice, you'll do it more than once. Imagine how much year you have left if you read the New Testament in January. You look down all those other months and think, what else can I do? I'm a superhero. <laughs> There's nothing I can. It's empowering. I would urge here, don't be embarrassed. Sometimes members of the Lord's body miss opportunities to grow. That's just the facts. And sometimes it's embarrassing to them, and they say things like, I've been in the church so long, I'm not going to a new converse class. I've been in the church so long, I should know that stuff, and I would want somebody else not to know. I, again, I send you back to number one. Be personally responsible. Don't worry about that, and don't worry about other people. It's your faith. It's your spirit. It's your soul. It's your relationship with God. Don't worry about what other people think. You can grow. You can learn, and you should. Champion something for the Lord. You want to grow? Get a cause. Champion something for the Lord that you can do. Now, with this caveat, it doesn't need to involve the whole church. I'm not suggesting that you go home, think up something, and throw it onto the church. Church has enough programs, I assure you that. That's not the issue. We're talking about growing your faith. So what do you do? Champion something for the Lord you can do, and go do that. Let me offer a few options. Maybe you make visits. All these new members we had, maybe somebody could go see them. Maybe you could go see them. What if you wrote cards? All of the suffering and the loss and the pain that we've had, you don't need the elders for this. You don't need the preachers for this. This is yours, faith. Maybe you could host a fellowship. I'm going to host people in my home. Who do you want to host? Chances are real good they'll come. Maybe you want to reach out to the youth. Maybe you want to share the good news. Maybe you want to read with somebody else and start a reading the Bible club. Maybe you want to participate in one or two of the available opportunities the church already offers. I will tell you this, generally speaking, churches are not short on programs. They're short on participation. And what happens most times is when churches have programs and the programs don't have participation, the church looks at that and says, what should we do? I know what we'll do. Let's make new programs. Peter says, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow thereby. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Point number three. How about your outlook? Optimism. Hopefulness. The proper perspective. We talked about it at length in the book of Philippians, and we're going to finish that at some point here. We needed to disrupt it for this sermon, these series of thoughts, but we're going to get right back there. But that's what Paul talks about. it. And through that book, we've already talked about several things that stand out. One of them is optimism. Paul is an upbeat, outward-looking, hopeful kind of person. You hear it in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Brethren, the things that have happened unto me, yes, Paul, what happened to you? I was beaten. I was thrown in the prison. And listen, as I look at that, I'm optimistic. Why? We got an opportunity to further the cause of Christ. He's hopeful, chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. He's not hopeless. In fact, Christians never are. 
because our hope is in Jesus Christ. God is the constant and true reality, and he always is. He's always capable. He's always able. There's never a time when something is too hard for the Lord, and so it's never too hard for his children because they always have him. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And so, as the Hebrew writer says then, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? But it's not just that we read it. We see it in the Bible. Those three young men in the book of Daniel stand before the fiery furnace, threatened with their very lives, and they tell Nebuchadnezzar, we are not worried here, sir. We are not careful. We are not anxious to answer to you. We are not. Our God is able, and even if he doesn't, we are not bowing. How can they do that? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. There's Jesus standing in the presence of Pilate being asked, do you not know I have power to release you or to have you killed? You'd have no power if it were not given to you. Acts chapter 4, the apostles stand arrested, brought into the council, don't preach anymore in his name. We'll threaten them. Acts chapter 5, they're arrested again, and this time they're confronted with, did not we tell you not to preach anymore in this name? We can't help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Whether it's right in the sight of God, to hearken unto you, or hearken unto God, you judge that. But we can't help speak things which we've seen and heard. I love the way they couched it. We're either going to listen to you or we're going to listen to God. We're either going to fear you or we're either going to fear God. We're either going to serve God, you, or we're going to serve God. In fact, you decide how you think that should go, but I can tell you what we're going to do. We're going to keep serving the Lord. Hey, friends, let me ask you, brethren, when did God lose this ability? When did God get out of the being able business? When did God decide to leave his children? I am amazed and sometimes saddened by the way Christians look at the world. As if we woke up one day and the world had gotten in such a state that not even God could—the world will never get into such a state that God cannot handle it, that God is not in charge that God doesn't rule in the kingdoms of men. And as a result of that, in the midst of persecution, the words are, we will boldly and confidently come to God, and we will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me ask you this. Why is our temperament anything other than optimistic and hopeful? Well, Eric, it's too cold, and so I can't be optimistic and hopeful. It's too hot, so I can't be optimistic and hopeful. They're too evil, so I can't be optimistic and hopeful. They won't change, so I can't be— No, sir, and no, ma'am. The temperament should be one of joy. When? You tell me what your Bible says, because mine says, count it all joy. That's what the Bible says. My Bible says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in good times, yes. Rejoice in peaceful times, yes. Rejoice when the weather and the temperature is exactly how it would be if you could draw it up and turn the thermostat. Yes, yes, and yes. And what if, what if they're killing us? What if they're destroying our reputations? What if they're taking our jobs? What if they're ruining our reputations? And what if some of us are dying for the cause? That's the context of the New Testament after Acts 2. The words are written in that context. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How's your outlook? This would be a great time. This would be a great time to look forward this year with hopefulness, optimism, 
joy. Can I ask you to make this day, this year, be the one in which we stop saying, I know I need to, but? Can this be the pivot point where we leave that behind and we start saying, I know I need to and I'm going to. Be personally responsible and allow someone to hold you accountable. Obey the gospel and grow your faith and mature spiritually. Improve your perspective. Sometimes people ask, am I the drama? Somebody needs to say, yeah. And you need to be able to receive that. Never obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, that's what you need to do this morning. It's not just a new year, a new day. It, it's a new life because of Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8, 24. That's what he says. And if you struggle with believing whether or not he is, read the book of John. And listen to him set forth evidence. Repent, the Bible says, or you'll perish, Luke 13, 3. It's a change of mind, literally a new mind. You've learned something new. You've, been in, you've come to know Jesus, and you're sorry about what you've done, and, and you want to change that, and you change your mind about the way you're going to live going forward. You confess the name of Jesus, and you are then baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, and God, through Jesus, will wash you clean. You, you'll walk out of the water a new creation. What if you have? Friends, let's grow. In fact, let's grow and let's go. I made that up. <laughs> but isn't this a good time to do it? Isn't this a good time to grow? There are plenty of people here who will help in every way we can. And we invite you. If we can do anything for you this morning, if we can help, if we can assist, please come as we stand and as we sing.